Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for taking that word and washing us over with it and just relieving us of all the grime from this world. And may we learn to leave those things outside where they belong. And in here, may we learn to focus on your precious word. Thank you for a place of peace and quiet. Thank you for a building on a hill that is so very precious to us and this family. Uh, may we never become familiar with it, but rather embrace it for what it is, a, an expression of your love through grace. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt against us, to make an evening like this one even a reality. We do just ask for blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the difficult passages, Grace and Works, Part 19. We ought not be too surprised at the length of this series, uh, Grace and Works. So much time has been spent, of course, on grace to date, which makes total sense and it's really going to make our stay, if you would, with works a short one, at least significantly shorter than all the work on grace. But uh, with that said... Um, Tonight has a lot of moving parts. That's all I can tell you is that we've done an awful lot of work, but there's a lot of concepts sort of out there that the Holy Spirit's been put on the table, or has put on the table for us. So you're going to have to concentrate. And again, if you're, if you're new or you're, um, you, know, you haven't been following along, tonight might be a little bit more difficult than the average lesson. But if you haven't, have been following along, I'm just telling you, you're going to need to concentrate. I know it's a Thursday evening. Uh, and what have you, but uh, please do that thing. As I listened to Tuesday's message, I thought about why mankind does some things but not others, and I've been in a sort of a reflective mood for the last few days. I think it has something to do with the elections and all this kind of a thing, just thinking about people and, you know, why mankind does some things and not others. And it got me thinking about the adding to salvation perversion of the gospel that we've been studying, which is really faith plus works equals salvation, uh, that perversion that um, really says that it's not just faith alone and Christ alone, but it's works. Man has to add works to be saved. Well, that's a perversion. That is to say, again, if, you know, quote, if I'm good enough overall at least, God will let me into heaven if I'm good enough. And so these people, as I was thinking about why people do the things they do, these people attempt to walk in the general direction of heavenly things, but they ignore all the little things. So it's kind of like, as long as I'm doing good enough, whatever that means, uh, God will be kind to me and let me into heaven, as if that was the salvation equation, so to speak. And so they attempt to walk in the general direction of heavenly things, but they ignore all the little things. And now this brings us to the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, quote, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. 
And that's a theme that the Lord um, expounded upon in not just direct speak, but also in parables. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. That's Luke 16.10. As we've been learning from Scripture, much of what it means to be alive in Christ, to be saved, is our newfound God-given ability to walk by the Spirit. So those are two different concepts. So in keeping with those two thoughts, he who is faithful in a little thing is faithful also in much. And also, those of us who are made alive in Christ have this God-given ability to walk by the Spirit. So in keeping with those two thoughts, I jotted down the following, something worth sharing for the sake of perspective. Uh, it's the little things. Uh, and it sounds almost uh, quaint to say that. Uh, but take it for what it is. I mean, these are the words, of, these are the concepts from our Lord. The little things in Luke 16 and 19. It's often easier to walk in the general direction of goodness and be unkempt spiritually. It's analogous to a person who is able to keep a job but shows up consistently hungover, filthy, whatever, unkempt. It seems easier um, often to just sort of walk in, you know, in the general direction of goodness but be unkempt spiritually. But then again, here's what Scripture has to say. Luke 16.10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So Jesus is laying down the gauntlet. <laughs> He's saying, I'm looking at the little things. I'm not just looking at you thinking you're good enough or what have you. I'm looking at all the little things as well. So it's an interesting thing to ponder. And frankly, we ought all look in the mirror whenever the Spirit gives us Scripture like this you know, in the context of our own lives. In the context of our own lives. So each of you is to, is to apply the Scripture to your own lives, uh, in your own soul right now, because that's what He wants from you. What about the little things? How are you with the little things? I mean, do you think that, you know, driving to church on a regular basis, or, you know, every so often going out with Scott or Michael or whoever's out there at the mission field, uh, that's, you know, generally walking in the right direction. But all the little things, your, your life is a spiritual mess otherwise. All the little things that Jesus Christ said, I'm watching. What say you of that when you look in the mirror? And there's no condemnation here, so don't be all guilt-ridden nine minutes into the lesson. <laughs> I still need you to concentrate. But these are the things he wants us to think about. And I'm not going to tell you what they are in your life. It's not my business. You have to think about what the words of our Lord mean to you. We know he's looking, though. Figuratively speaking, are we showing up to, quote, do business with God's grace day after day in shambles? How do we show up to the job site? Are we unkempt? unwashed by the word itself, filthy even? We must ask ourselves if we shall hear those precious words at the Bema Seat Judgment. Go to Luke 19.17. <clears throat> Luke 19.17. We have to ask ourselves, 
will we hear these words, these precious words? <clears throat> and this is not a treadmill. It's not a, um, you know, an opportunity to so-called become religious. These are thoughts that he's impressing on our souls. Luke 19, 17, and he said to him, well done, good slave. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that? That may not be, and it frankly isn't, the motivation of a humble person. Remember, we do things out of gratitude. A humble person does things out of gratitude. Not necessarily for the prize, not necessarily for the crowns. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You ought to be an authority over ten cities. Again, our great shepherd pays attention. What is he saying? He pays attention to the little things. And just reflecting for a moment, as one of his anointed under-shepherds, it really isn't a surprise to me that he often has me pointing out a lot of the little things in your lives. I don't know exactly all the details. Frankly, I don't want to. I want to sleep at night. <laughs> but he has me do that good work for you. Uh, and it's a very good work. And a lot of so-called pastors won't do it because they don't either shouldn't be standing behind a pulpit or they don't have the, quote, courage to do it. But it's those times that he has me do that that are, frankly, often the times that the venom and the dagger eyes come out from my audience. People think that a pastor is being overly, let's say, picayune because he performs his duties as unto the Lord the same one that stated clearly that he looks intently at the little things. I'm just being diligent. I'm not being overly uh, picky with you. I'm not intent on, you know, sowing condemnation in you or guilt or anything like that. I'm being diligent. The Word says the little things. The Holy Spirit has never let us off the hook. Amen? He's always turning over new stones for all of us, saying, yeah, 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 I hear you, la, la, la. So how about this over here? And you're like, oh, right? And a big old skeleton falls out on your feet. And you're like, oh, that closet, right? <laughs> so I'm just being diligent. Now, the other thing that popped out of Tuesday's lesson for me is related to this. I was thinking about how the Lord asks us to live completely different lives. I mean, nobody in here. I, I, sometimes I, I have to chuckle. Come on. I got Anthony over here. Tammy, Jim, Don, Monica. You know, I got Scott. I mean, come on. Right? That's why he sits over there. He sees all by himself. Right? He really just thinks he's better than you. That's what he told me. Bro. You know, but I look out. I mean, seriously, what an eclectic group. I mean, would we really in any other walk or any other reason, would we ever come together like this? Probably not. It's, Bill's laughing, right? Because he said definitely not. He's like... <laughs> so I was thinking about how the Lord asks us to live completely different lives. Yet the base commands are the same for all of us. It's not like you know each one of us has a personalized translation of the Bible. So the commands really are the same, but yet... It's obvious that he wants us to live different lives. So let me see if I can bring this to light with an analogy. 
and it's just a loose fit, but I'm just trying to drive a point home on this idea of individuality. So the Lord says he says to two of his children, again, it's just an analogy. The Lord says to two of his children, take these identical buckets of Legos and go build whatever you want with them. I'll leave you to build your structures in separate rooms while I go away. When I return, I want to see what you've come up with. So the two children inspect the pieces, go back to their lives, every so often adding a piece or two to their existing structures, never seeing the others. And then the Lord returns and says to the first child, you know, wow, very cool. Not sure if he'd use that language. He says, very cool. You've shown you can take whatever I've given you and make something beautiful. Here's a bunch more Legos. Have fun. So in other words, you've taken what little I've given you. Now I'm going to entrust you with more. The other child, uh, the Lord says basically the same thing, yet the two Lego structures are completely different. So he goes to one room and says, wow, that's fantastic. Here's some more. I don't know, maybe this one built a building or something, and this one built a bridge. I don't know. But they're both beautiful. So I just wanted you to build. And because you used what little I gave you, I'm going to give you more. I'm going to entrust you with more. There's another parable like that. If he can't entrust you with the world's wealth, how's he going to entrust you with eternal wealth, right? So the idea I was thinking about and this is just summarizing a lot of the things that have been sort of coming from this pulpit as of late. Individual beauty. I've said this from the pulpit. I mean it with all my heart. Everyone in here is beautiful, except Scott. <laughs> it's just the arrogance, you know what I mean? I just can't get by it. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? No, everybody in here has something that's truly beautiful about them. And the Lord made us that way. But that's the thing. He wants you to be yourself. He created you as you. He's never messed anything up ever. He just wants you to move forward. He wants you to take with whatever grace he's given you. That's the parable of the miners, right? Whatever grace he's given you and, and, and use it. So that someday he may say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in the little things. So I'm going to give you more. The Lord isn't looking, up here on the board, individual beauty, the Lord isn't looking for us to mimic each other's lives. He wants us to be ourselves, to, quote, do business, to borrow from Luke 19, to do business with His grace and enjoy the ride. Honestly, what does it say in the Bible? We're not supposed to rejoice. As a matter of fact, it says we should rejoice. It says, Jesus Himself said, I, I give you my own peace. My peace I give to you. Not, we're not always wearing smiles because it's tough out there. And life itself is daunting sometimes. But that doesn't mean we can't have that inner joy. Joy, I think, among many other things, um, has been perverted. Most people think joy, well, joy will only come when I make X amount of dollars and I can go on more vacations or buy another Shih Tzu or another... <laughs> Whatever your lap dog you prefer, right? 
Because this one's licking this side, and this one's licking that side. Right? Do you know what I'm getting at? That's bogus. That's not joy. That's not joy at all. Oh, I'm going to find myself, you know, a good spouse. Well, I guess Jesus and Paul were idiots, because they never did that. So we know it's not about the opposite sex. We know it's none of that stuff. But yet, we have a joy. And we live this life in something transcendent, that maybe we're not smiling all the time. Maybe that's not the kind of joy that he's talking about. So the Lord isn't looking for us to mimic each other's lives. He wants us to be ourselves, to do business with His grace and enjoy the ride. As we've already seen, it's at the end of the parable of the miners that the Lord makes that wonderful statement in Luke 19.17. Again, and He said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. So he's saying, I'm watching. I'm not expecting any more than what you can do with my grace. I'm not asking you to build the Brooklyn Bridge with a can of Legos. I'm asking you to use what I give you. Some of you are going to be sweeping floors. Some of you are going to be the president of a company. Some of you are going to be wonderful uh, stay-at-home moms. Some of you are going to be, I don't know, whatever. Just don't be transgender. You're going to be whatever. Do you understand? And he says, I made you this way, so just use what I've given you. I think what God is saying is simple. He's saying that we ought to consider that his righteousness is perfect, which means nothing is ever out of place in his essence. Now, this brings us back to our lessons as of late. His righteousness is perfect, which means that nothing is ever out of place in his life. Everything's perfect. Everything's perfectly ordered. Everything. For us to be transformed then into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, we must consider every aspect of ourselves as subject to His sovereignty. And every aspect of ourselves means even the little things. Maybe in some ways more so the little things. And it's His sovereignty that demands the divine standard for righteousness. Now, while we can struggle, especially with the innumerable little things in life, here's how we ought to consider God's viewpoint on life. So we all had a good chuckle about our own lives, etc. The little things, it's innumerable. How do I keep up with every little thing? I don't want you walking out of here panicking, saying, oh, now I have to worry about every little thing. No, that's not what he's talking about either. But here's what we can say. Gee, what do I do in this situation? Said God, never. He never has that problem. We have that problem. But God never has this problem. God never asks himself, gee, what do I do in this situation? And as we've been learning this past week, since Sunday even, you have to broaden, you have to elevate your perspective whenever we think about God. God is life. We're so egocentric that we think our own little piddly definitions of life, our own experience, that's called uh, existentialism, our own existence 
should define what life is. That's not true, because God is life. God's eternal. That's why we say he's eternal life. But we're not that. We're given it at salvation, which is something we can't fully comprehend. But when we think about the essence of God, we have to think about God in that context, that God is life. He is perfect. Therefore, he is perfect life, where every big and little thing is perfectly arranged and harmonious. Up here on the board, we're just digging a little deeper, and I warned you, you're going to have to concentrate. I'm starting to bring our lessons together now. God is life. Any meaningful discovery we might make in life is something that has always been. God doesn't have epiphanies or, you know, aha moments. Ecclesiastes 1, 9, there's nothing new under the sun. Those times are unique to man. As he, man, realizes the things of God, his mind is blown. But we, not, we should not think that because, oh, wow, I had this epiphany. God, did you see that? What do you mean that I see it? Of course, I, I saw it before you were even born. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. God is life. All the big things, all the little things. Everything's perfectly, harmoniously organized in its right place. He never says, gee, what do I do? What about this? I got questions about that. So any meaningful discovery we might make in life is something that has always been. God doesn't have epiphanies or aha moments. Those times are unique to man. As he realizes the things of God, his mind is blown. What the Spirit's also been trying to iron out in our souls is the error that man makes while disoriented to the essence of God. Now this gets a little deeper into our lessons as of late. Just reflect for a moment. Man tends to misappropriate the struggles he experiences by imposing them on God as if God shares in those struggles. In other words, we take the context, we take our lens, as I like to look at it, we take our lens and we say, here, God, use my lens. But God says, that's not the lens I use. Your lens is all foggy and hazy and incomplete. My lens is perfect. Why would I look through your lens? Although he, we don't do this to God, but we try. We misappropriate our own struggles, and then we impose them on God. And that's how we create our own false doctrines even. That God must be this, and God must be that, and you know, grace must be this, and, and God's love must be that. And if they're not in order the way I see them, which is imperfect, then God must not love me. Or I, I, this is a farce, or you know, this whole Bible thing is, is fake, or what have you. When the actual error is that man is trying to misappropriate the things of God and then impose misappropriated things on God. So man gets so dysfunctional. Even I was having a tough time keeping up with my own words there. Seriously. Man gets so dysfunctional with this that he gets stuck in what I have historically called dysfunction junction. Dysfunction junction, this horrible cycle that man gets in. And it can happen even uh, in the so-called spiritual life. It becomes normalized that dysfunction itself becomes normalized. 
that's why it has its own edifice, its own building. We call it Dysfunction Junction. This is where I live, <laughs> right here. I'm home, Dysfunction Junction. So this whole thing becomes normalized. And I have to speak in generalities because I don't know what your Dysfunction Junction is. I know what my own, my own is, my own areas of weakness, where I try to impose my own dysfunction on God, who's perfect. Dysfunctional man, though he often complains incessantly about his struggles, actually perversely prefers the so-called struggle. So much so, we impose it on God, which is silliness. Let me say that again. You're going to have to think about this one. Dysfunctional man, though he often complains incessantly about his struggles, actually perversely prefers the so-called struggle. So much so, we impose it on God, which is silliness. And on Tuesday, the Spirit, on that note, the Spirit kept asking us to ask ourselves, who am I? I mean, who am I to take my ridiculousness and impose it on God? And then suggest that the way I see things is the way He ought to see things. But isn't that what man does? Who am I? This is something Scripture has a lot to say about up here on the board. Romans 9.20. Remember, all the spirits, and I know there's a lot of moving parts, I warned you. All the spirits really trying to say is get the right perspective on all of this. God's sovereign, you're not. He's omniscient, you're not. He's the author, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. You are not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You were not. So we have to learn to orient to the immutable, which means unchangeable God of the universe. So then we ask, this is what Scripture says, Romans 9.20, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God, the thing molded, will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? I mean, who are we? Some, as we know, will argue, you know, they start to whining, but life's not fair. What does that even mean? I was thinking about that as I was preparing this lesson. All right, tell me what fair is then. Who can say what fair is? I mean, the election's a perfect example. Oh, this isn't fair. What are you talking about? What's fair? Honest to goodness, someone tell me what fair is. You know what fair is? Every person says this is fair when they're looking through their own lens. Amen? That's how everybody has a different idea of what fair is. You ever have a brother or sister? How many times you fight about what's fair? It's not fair. They sat in the front seat last time. You're both in the back. Or as my mom would say, if I have to stop this car. And she had like one arm that was like three feet longer than the other one. You're like waving across the back seat because we had like some giant, archaic, titanic, uh, you know, panel-sided station wagon. Eddie, you go way in the back. I'd be back there in Siberia with that little thing, you know. <laughs> who said, I mean, by man's definition of fair, what is fair? And who are you to say? The only person that actually knows what real fairness is, is God. Because he's the only objective, perfect one that knows everything. 
So you get a bunch of whiners that say, you know, ah, life's not fair. I was born into this dysfunctional family, and I'm going to blame my parents until the day I die. I'd argue that asking if life is fair is a bad question. We really shouldn't be asking that question, is it fair? A better question that always results in the affirmative is, is God righteous in what he does with each of us as individuals? Is he? Of course he is. is God, that's the better question. Not, is life fair? Throw that out. Because the only way you have to think about, the only way you're going to think about that is through your own lens. And then you're going to call up, you know, Sally on the phone, hey, is life fair? And then you get a three-hour, you know, vomit session from Sally about how her life's not fair, and then you regret calling her. The better question is, is God righteous in what he does with each of us as individuals. That's the perspective we need to get. That's the perspective we've been like literally perched on since September of last year. Is God righteous in the way that he demands he's about to save someone? Is the plan for salvation righteous? Or do we get to redefine it somehow? Oh, well, I don't believe in the God that was, you know, the Jesus God. I believe in this other God with a big belly and I rub it for good luck. Right? And also at the bottom of it is a, is a uh, cigarette tray. You don't get that? You've seen that? Right? I believe in that God. And since that's what I believe, that's God. And I'm going to heaven. I don't care what you say about this Jesus guy. Because I don't think it's fair that I have to believe in some guy that supposedly died. I don't, I don't think it's fair how that works. That if someone, you know, my, my favorite uncle, who was the nicest man I've ever known, said no to Jesus, and you're telling me that he's going to be in the lake of fire forever and ever if he really didn't believe in the gospel. I don't think that's fair. I think that's a, the bad question. The better question is, is God sovereign, first of all? And is he righteous in what he does with each of us as individuals, beginning with the gospel? The answer, of course, is always yes. See, you don't have the problem, is life fair? That's a bad question. You're always going to end up in some snafu somewhere, especially if other people are involved. Ask a good question. Is God righteous in what he does with each of us as individuals? The answer, of course, is always yes. Some may not give up that easily in the so-called plight, arguing, but God crushes some of his own children. How can that be right? Child abuse, uh, early infant sickness and death, etc., etc. How can that be right? So just reflect on this for a moment. I'm trying to give you some perspective from the Spirit on this. It has everything to do with the fact that you're not infinite in your wisdom or knowledge is there ever really only one variable in a, in a life equation, let's call it? Something happens, something's about to happen, I don't know, life, some equation, you know, this, that. Is there really only one variable in life? Does God willingly crush one of his own for one reason 
or multiple, many of which man has no idea about. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. But every time there are things we don't know. So is there ever really only one variable in a life equation? Seriously. Is there? Is God, does God allow you to go through suffering? Does God allow a little baby to go through suffering? You know, if a baby dies before what we call theologically, the age of accountability, they get to go to heaven. Even if they were suffering for six months or a year of their life, forever and eternity doesn't even compare. But what if that suffering had the ripple effect of bringing the family to Jesus? What if they got, finally got on their knees and said, Lord, I, the doctors can't help. I can't help. I'm in a hopeless, helpless situation. Where are we at with this thing? Maybe they get on their knees because of that. You don't know. Maybe he used that thing to save people. How do you know? There's no one variable. So then you have to say yourself, do you know all the variables? No. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not, but every time there are things we don't know. Go to Deuteronomy 8.3. I loved it. This came up on Tuesday. Deuteronomy 8.3. Look, there are just some things we don't know about. Deuteronomy 8.3. And he's just giving you more and more perspective. He humbled you and let you be hungry. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't it? Isn't there another place in Scripture that says he even takes care of the sparrows? So why would you worry about food? Why is he making me? Why is he letting me go hungry? <laughs> Isn't that a contradiction? No, of course it's not. He said he humbled you. Obviously, that's what you needed, arrogant. He humbled you and let you be hungry. That's right. He let you be hungry. And then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand. Now, Israel was pretty obstinate, right? They were pretty stubborn people. And so he had to get through to them somehow. He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Let me give you this word, anah, in uh, the Hebrew for humbled. To oppress, humiliate. You mean God might humiliate me? Um, Jesus. <clears throat> That's why we call it his humiliation. <clears throat> he was pleased to crush him, Isaiah 55, right? His own son, pleased to crush him. Why? So we can even be sitting here tonight. Why not? What do you mean? Why? To oppress, humiliate, to be afflicted. God uses whatever means necessary to impress his will and purpose upon man's heart. Whether it is accommodating, accommodating to man's sensibilities or not. This is true grace. And I need you to focus on so much of our lessons as of late have been on that last statement, hasn't it? Whether it is accommodating to man's sensibilities or not is not the issue. It's still grace. True grace says, I will even humiliate you. I will press you down if that's what's necessary to bring you to my grace. 
Paul cried multiple times, take this thorn from me. Nope. And then he remembered what? My grace is sufficient for you. That's what he needed. That's what we all need. Amen? Seriously. Would we not be wild animals just running rampant out there? No, for real. If there was no kickback, if there was no any kind of true suffering imposed in our life, if everything was just unbridled, we would annihilate ourselves. Right? Thank God. I think you said it the other night. Thank God for not answering some prayers of ours. Because what do we pray for? Especially when we're younger in the faith, we pray for all selfish stuff. Like a million dollars, right? I would, lo- <laughs> I'd like this, and I'd like that, and I'd like this, and I, and I swear I'll give ten percent to the church, and you know whatever all this garbage crap. And God's like, you know what? No, I'm gonna make you broke. Matter of fact, you know what? I'm gonna one up you before you're even born, because I know that's how you are. I'm gonna put you in a broke family that may not eat all the time. I'm going to put you in a broke family with dysfunctional parents that you go, what the? <laughs> and he says, you know why I did that? Because that's what you needed, you arrogant little person. That's exactly what you needed. So stop complaining about it and start appreciating the fact that we're even having this conversation right now. Imagine that. I knew what I was doing. If you're hearing my voice right now, he knew what he was doing. So all that garbage you've been complaining about, mm, He knew what he was doing. He may not like the fact that it was painful, but he knew what he was doing. And that's what Anamis. He humbled. To oppress, humiliate, to be afflicted. God uses whatever means necessary. You don't know all the variables. To impress his will and purpose upon man's heart, whether it's accommodating to man's sensibilities or not, this is true grace. And this is what we've been learning. Man likes to say, but God, if you really loved me, you would do this for me because you know that's what I want. And how often do we want what's good for us? Hardly ever, right? What did Israel do? Give us Saul, right? Tall, handsome guy? No. How'd that work out? Not very well. Man's always asking for things that appeal to his own sensibilities, things he thinks are right, things he thinks are good for him. And God often says, no way. No way. Nope. Because you'll annihilate yourself. You're not ready for it. That's not for you or whatever. But that's true grace. Go to uh, verse 11. What we find out as you're going forward there is that the, the more mature we become in the faith, the more our prayers become more like God's will for us. His will and our will begin to coalesce if you would or come together that's what it that's when you start knowing that you're growing up in the faith that your two wills what you read in the bible is consistent what the spirit's convicting you of day in and day out is now consistent there's not as much antagonism in your life you're not going la 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 to the spirit or as some people would do not ever pray at all because every time they pray they get convicted not a very good strategy. Look at Deuteronomy 8.11 for more context. 
Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He led you, though, uh, through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no waiter, or water. Excuse me. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might, there it is again, Anah, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power in the strength of my hand made me this wealth. That's man for you, right? In a nutshell. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may con confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods, little g's, and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. You see the problem? God gives grace to who? The humble. To the humble, right? The Bible never says that he won't help you there. As a matter of fact, we just learned the Bible says, I will make you humble. I will make you understand. I will press you to your knees. And you know how it is. You know, it's like, I hate to use the kid things again, right? I don't know if you, I was sick as a kid, so. Like, everybody was cool with that? I'm surprised. I didn't mean sickly. I meant like sick in the head. Like you, you know, like your little sister. I had a sister, you know, she pinched me in the arm. And I'd be like, don't hurt. She'd be like, don't hurt, right? No matter what, I would, I would never give up, right? Kill. Like you really hurt. Don't hurt. That's arrogance, right? God's like, whatever. You're like, whatever. You know, you're like this big. It's nothing. I can handle this. That's an arrogant person. But God's going to get you to that point where you will have to, for starters, make a decision about the gospel itself. And that's where it all starts. And then that cycle repeats over time. Even after salvation, he humbles us. Why? So that he can give us grace. He does everything. He says, I only, give, I only give grace to the humble. That's what Scripture says, James 4, 6. Well, how do we get humble? Uh, let me work on that. I will make you humble. Whatever it takes. Some areas of your life, you're like, I'm totally humble, no problem. Some areas of your life, you're like, okay, God, let's go. <laughs> it's like that machine, remember that? The carnivals? Anybody do that one? No. I'm wrestling with God. That's a, that's a good bet. God gives grace to the humble. 
But here's the underlying contention the Spirit's been ferreting out of our own lives, even as individuals. And you need to listen to this because we're just about ready to depart from this series. Grace isn't always nice. Nice and fair, they're in the same boat of ridiculousness. Grace isn't always nice. Show me that in the Bible, I'll teach it, but it's not there. Grace is not always nice. Man has pigeonholed grace into a one-sided thing where it is defined as all things that accommodate man's predisposition about God's benevolence towards his creatures. In other words, God's a loving God. And I know that he's doing something for me when he does something that I want him to do. But that literally leaves out half the equation. Because the other half, and unless you're really arrogant, then it's like the other 90%. The other part of the equation is that he's doing all this other stuff to press you down, Anna, to maybe even humiliate you, to let you humiliate yourself. Anybody been there? Right? How often do we learn the first time around? <laughs> right? I'll let you humiliate yourself. That's me humiliating. A lot of times the Bible speaks that way. You're doing it, but it was really God's plan. Therefore, is him humiliating yourself, you, not just you, yourself? I will let you humiliate yourself. That's me humiliating you, humbling you. So you figure out that you don't have, that that's, you don't have control over that thing. I have control over the universe. This is my plan, not just for salvation, but being saved daily. How I go about my own grace, even, is not your choice. I'm not here to accommodate you. Hence the point on the board. Grace isn't always nice. Man is, has pigeonholed grace into a one-sided thing where it is defined as all things that accommodate man's predisposition about God's benevolence towards his creatures. These are the inventions of man's flesh. Yeah, that's right. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that grace, the grace of God, accommodates man's predisposition about God. We would all invent our own gods. Isn't that what the idolaters do? Isn't that what we just learned? Is, what did uh, John say at the end of John, the first epistle of John? Out of nowhere, it seems, but not really. Children, guard yourself against idols. You, you finish that book and you're like, where did that just come from? Someone says, like, oh yeah, children don't have idols. That's because when we don't, when we pervert God, when we choose to make little gods, we now have idols of our own doing. These are the inventions of man's flesh. Grace isn't always nice. Nowhere is this more critical than with the gospel itself. As the Spirit stated on Tuesday, you may brush this off and you may say, ah, this is like pastors splitting hairs and it seems like he's like, where's he going with this? It seems like he's splitting, but it's, I'm not. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. If you don't understand God's sovereignty or his grace, I don't see how you could understand salvation. I don't understand how you'd understand the gospel. So it's a big deal. Trusting in Christ from the heart is not a lighthearted decision. 
And that's why we must be careful of using lighthearted language even. It's our responsibility, the greatest commission on our lives right now as believers, if you're truly saved, is the great commission to go out and make disciples. So we can't make light of it. We can't make the gospel accommodating to man because that's what they want. Well, that's offensive to me. Don't talk to me about Jesus. You can talk to me about God. The whole world will talk about God. But nobody wants to talk about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is offensive. But God's grace is offensive to man's flesh. I'll add another perspective on here, up here on the board. It's truly impossible to use, now think about this, it's truly impossible to use light-hearted language if we introduce the fullness of God's sovereignty against the depravity of man's inherent condition. I mean, how do you make light of that? What do you do? Go up to somebody and say, don't even worry about it. Just believe this coin. Let's go have drinks. How do you make light? It's impossible to have a lighthearted conversation if a person's flesh is in full frontal view. It's impossible because that flesh does not want the sovereign God, does not want the gospel, does not want Jesus Christ, doesn't want any of it. Says, no, thank you. Give me a free ticket to heaven. I'll take that. Tell me I have to say this little prayer or believe this little thing. I'll definitely take that one. That's called hedging bets. But don't tell me I have to be humbled. Don't tell me I have to understand that I was born totally depraved. Don't tell me that against the fact that now there's a sovereign, holy God that's infinitely a distant from the way I was born. Don't tell me that stuff because it's offensive to me. I think I'm a pretty good guy. Look at me. Nobody does that? <laughs> I don't either. I'm just, you know, everybody's getting like. You tell no, that's us. It's a big deal. That's us trying to accommodate man. We don't have the right. This is what he keeps coming back to. He's like, that's your little lens of what you think is fair. That's your little lens of what you think is right. That's your little lens of what you think is whatever. And God's like, that's that's not what's in the book at all. That's you trying to shoehorn the narrow gate. You can't do it. So cut it out. It's a big deal. Stop making it something it isn't. It's a somber, solemn issue. It's impossible to use certain language in light of those things. What the Spirit's been teaching me as of late is that the gospel, you have to cling to this. The gospel that I preach is offensive to man's sensibilities. It is offensive. So just dwell on that. I'm almost out of time. I didn't say maybe it will be. I said it will be. The gospel that's been coming from this pulpit, specifically since we reloaded it back in September, is offensive. You have to think of it that way. It's literally offensive up here on the board. There's only one gospel 
that the flesh will ever be wholly offended by. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world will give you God. They will. Oh, yeah, God this, God that, God this. Oh, no, not Jesus, though, but God. But you don't, the Bible says you don't know God except through Jesus. Nobody comes to the Father but through me, he said. I'm the way and the truth and the life. There's no other way that Oprah talks about. That's what she does, by the way. There's many ways. Shut up. Seriously. Listen, if God said there were many ways, guess what I'd be up here doing? I'd be teaching. There are many ways. There's only one gospel that the flesh will ever be wholly offended by. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one of the ways you know that you got it right. If you're standing in front of somebody and you can literally see their flesh agitated, they're not humble, they're arrogant. And you can see them starting to grow in their agitation. Chances are you know that you've got it right because the flesh is about ready to choke you. That's what the flesh wants to do. Don't tell me. You know, uh-huh. don't tell me my business. I'm going to heaven. Oh, really? Would you have a, you, I negotiated with St. Peter. When I meet him up at the pearly gates, he and I are going to have a little chat. And I'm good enough. Really? Really? Says who? Says what? Where'd you get that one from? Seriously, Bugs Bunny? Where'd you get that from? Where'd you get that gospel from? That, that you're good enough. Where, where, when has that ever happened? The Bible says you, you fail the law in one way. You fail the whole law. Who hasn't sinned here? Anybody want to raise a hand on that one? Who has, all right, you ready? Let's have a contest. Who hasn't sinned the last hour? <laughs> Nobody. Everybody's like, I did. I was like, when you were talking about that other thing, I was like, well, I don't know. We're ridiculous. We can't even go like five minutes without having some mental attitude sin. Okay, maybe that's just me. (laughs) You know, the flesh hates the gospel. It's offended by it. False gospels will always have something appealing to the flesh baked into them, you see? And then there's a continuum, of course, to complete an atheist. Always be based on perversions of God's grace in salvation. And I I guess I'll just have to pick a spot here. Practically speaking, because I'm out of time. Man seeks to impose his will over God's. This is what the Spirit's been talking about. He's saying, come on, man. You've been born with a limited lens. Your lens is wholly imperfect. God's lens is perfect. But yet man seeks to impose his will over God's. He wants God to accommodate him and then call it grace. But you see, that's not God's grace at all. It's a perversion. God's grace accommodates his perfect righteousness to his glory just to run it out a little bit, to let the line out a little bit, if, say, for one day in your life, God allowed you to define 
what grace was. All right? Probably have a parking lot of Rolls Royces or, or whatever. <laughs> whatever, you know what I'm saying, right? We would destroy ourselves. <clears throat> but that's the, that's the thing that we want from God. We look at God as if he's another, he's a person, but as if he's just another associate at work or another person or another, you know, chance friendship or the next person that we befriend because we want to manipulate and use them like we've done in the past. That's how we look at God. What have you done for me lately? You know, Janet Jackson, right? What have you done for me lately? Oh, nothing. You haven't done anything I wanted you to do. You haven't done anything that I liked you to do. I went to church three times and I picked up my Bibles seven times last year and nothing happened. <laughs> nothing happened. Where's all the promises, huh? Where's all the promises? That's not grace. You understand? We try to put God on the treadmill. And that only happens when we start with our own lens and say, well, this is what I think grace is. This is what I think true faith looks like. This is what I, or here's the big one I'll leave you with. This is what I think love is. Oh, here we go. That was my Fabio impression, but I got no hair, obviously. <laughs> this is what love is. Really? You want to get yourself in a lot of trouble? Do that one. Put your lens on. Every time the word love comes up, up, oh, time for my lens. That is trouble. That is trouble lurking in every corner of your life. What does the Bible say about love? Why do we, why do we love God? Because he first loved us. How would you even know that? How would you even know how much he loves you? How would, you, how would that love, true love, godly love, be developed in you if you actually, first of all, never get to God because you never went through Jesus in the first place, so that's the gospel, and then you're lackadaisical on your own spiritual growth, dragging you behind. You understand what I'm saying? Think about those kinds of things. Think about the point on the board, and then I, I seriously have to close. Now I'm one minute over. <laughs> Man seeks to impose his will over God's. He wants God to accommodate him and then call that grace. But you see, that's not God's grace at all. It's a perversion. God's grace accommodates his perfect righteousness to his glory. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned. Out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.